First Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 10, Peter writes, Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things which angels desire to look into. Now in the opening chapter of Peter, we have looked at the source of salvation in verses 1 and 2. We have looked at the guarantee of our salvation in verses 3 through 5. The joy of our salvation in verses 6 through 9. And now Peter is going to look at what, what we could rightly call the greatness of our salvation in verses 10 through 12. So you can see right from the start the reoccurring theme of salvation. And so Peter is going to draw our attention to four viewpoints or four perspectives or four great agents who are involved in the mystery and the message of salvation. He's going to talk about it from four particular perspectives. The, New, the Old Testament prophets who studied it, the Holy Spirit who inspired it, the New Testament apostles who preached it, and then the angels who examined it. Now, all of those things are going to be important for you because what Peter is doing is he's reminding you that your salvation, the contemplation of it, the reality of it, the presence of it in your life becomes part and parcel of the thing that is going to get you through the difficult times. The source of our salvation, the guarantee of our salvation, the joy of our salvation, the greatness of our salvation, all are meant in part to provide a firm foundation, a solid basis on which to hold up under trial and suffering and pressure. And the reason why this becomes so very, very important is because many of us tend to focus on the trial, on the suffering, on the pressure. It's hard not to. If you've been diagnosed with cancer, if you've lost your job, if you are living under the constant pressure of a world that is detached from God and separated from God, it's hard not to think about those things. But here's the point that Peter is making. Not only do you have every right, but you have every opportunity to live in hope. That's part of the point that he's making. And so in verse 10, he continues with the theme of salvation, the Old Testament prophets, and he reminds you that all of the preservation of the prophecies, of the Bible, of the writings, was in part to bring you to a place where you would understand something, that God, before time even began, has orchestrated all of human history in order to accomplish the thing that you needed most. See, you may think that the thing that you need most is health or wealth, but the thing that you need most is forgiveness and redemption, reconciliation with God. And so Peter writes, of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. So it begins, of this salvation. What does the Bible mean when it speaks of salvation? And what does Peter mean when he's talking about salvation? One 
definition that I like comes from Lewis Sperry Schaefer and, and John Walver. They write, quote, the whole salvation is the whole work of God by which he rescues man from the eternal ruin and doom of sin and bestows on him the riches of his grace, including eternal life now and glory in heaven. It's something that that was orchestrated in the past, is taking place in the present, will continue in the future. And so when it says of this salvation, it's the whole work of God. And all that God does in that whole work, the whole work includes the progressive unfolding of the blessings of salvation. No wonder the Bible has so much to say about Salvation. Now remember the Old Testament prophets could only see bits and pieces, types and shadows concerning the coming of Messiah. Clearly there were prophecies surrounding his identity and his birth, his, his grief as it says in verses 10 and 11, and glory in verse 11. The prophecies seemed to fall into two broad categories. The prophecies they understood... And the prophecies that they didn't understand. A Messiah is going to come. A Messiah is going to suffer. A, a, a Messiah is going to be enthroned. How could all of this happen? A Messiah is going to come and be a provision of life and hope, of, of forgiveness and redemption. How is all of this going to happen? We saw bits and pieces in the Old Testament. Remember, salvation is always by innocent blood. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, the writer of Hebrews says, And according to the law, that's the Mosaic law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. And so from the very beginning in type and shadow, you see Adam and Eve who transgress in the garden and an animal is killed in Eden and clothes men and women, Adam and Eve. The blood of bulls and goats, birds and lambs could not and would not take away sin. We know that from Hebrews chapter 10 verse 4. Sinners acknowledge that through the offering there was sin in their life. And that that sin required the just penalty of death in Leviticus chapter 1 verse 4. So many people have this wrong understanding on more than one occasion. People have asked me on the radio program, why is Christianity such a bloody religion? Why is there blood everywhere? And the reason is because the Bible says that blood contains the life. It becomes a representation, if you will, of life. And so the shedding of blood becomes the taking away of life. And clearly on the part of God, the sacrifice anticipated the sacrifice of Jesus. You see, you may not take your sin seriously, but God does. God does. When the Lord says, the soul that sins, it shall surely die. He means it. And so the sacrifices were symbols meant to cover until the day when Jesus would fully and finally and forever deal with the problem of sin. So the subject of salvation has been the object of prophetic inquiry. The prophets themselves were interested in the prophecies given to them by God. And so what it's talking about is from the time of Moses all the way to Malachi and all of the prophecies in between. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. You'll remember that when the children of Israel were taken into captivity, the, Daniel would write. And as Daniel was writing, he would, he would pour over the scroll of Jeremiah, trying to figure out the, the circumstances of, 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 in which they found themselves. And so the point that Peter is making is that the prophets, in an incomplete way, had as their ultimate subject of inquiry, salvation. How is God going to do this? How is God going to rescue us? How is God going to take care of us? The mystery and mission of the church was concealed in the Old Testament, but then is revealed in the reality of the life, the ministry, and the death of Jesus. 
No wonder Peter says, of the grace that would come to you. Remember in the opening chapter of John it says that the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me put it to you this way. Grace is larger than salvation. Why would I say that? Because grace is the mechanism that motivated God to save you. Salvation is the result of God's grace. God in his heart, God in the inquiry of his heart, created a mechanism whereby you could be forgiven, whereby you could be cleansed, whereby you could be reconciled. Grace is that thing that motivates God to save us. And salvation, of course, is the result of all that he has done to save us in Christ. And so when it comes to verse 11, searching what or what manner of time the spirit of Christ was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. The Old Testament prophets were filled by the Holy Spirit and directed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was using them not just as mechanical instruments to dictate his will, but rather in a divine weaving of inspiration, empowering men and moving upon them. They would say stuff that they themselves didn't understand. For instance, if you look at the circumstances of Psalm 22... Even though David wrote it, there was no period in his life that seems to apply to it. But he was moved by the Holy Spirit. The time and the circumstances are further summarized by Peter. He talks about the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. This is Peter's way of summing up the life and the ministry of Jesus, which can be roughly divided into two categories. The sufferings, which include his passion and his death, and the glories, which include his resurrection from the dead and his ascension into heaven. That's why you see the Bible has this preoccupation with his passion, sufferings, with his death, and with his resurrection. Do you realize that one-third of the New Testament is devoted to the last week of Jesus' life? And so, for the prophets, they talked about the sufferings, they talked about the glories. Where? In, in Psalm 22 with David, in Isaiah chapter 9, in Isaiah chapter 11, in Isaiah chapter 53, over and over and over again, the reoccurring theme, the reoccurring message, a Messiah is going to come, a Messiah is going to come, the Messiah is going to suffer, the Messiah is going to suffer. And we could list hundreds of prophecies and the fulfillment of those prophecies. But guess what? As interesting as that is, that's not the point that Peter is making. The point that Peter is trying to communicate, remember, is that your trial, your suffering, your heartache, the sorrow that's, that's taking place in the life of the believer, in this particular instance, the historical context are believers who have been driven out of town, so to speak. They're under pressure. They're being put to death in Nero's court. Your salvation, here's the point that Peter is making. Even though they're under pain and they're under pressure and they're on the run, Peter is pointing out the reality that their salvation is the fulfillment of the prophet's inquiry. In other words, the point that Peter is making, if you take the sum and the substance of everything that Moses wrote, of everything that Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel wrote, if you look at all of the prophets given throughout all of the Old Testament prophecy, their unending preoccupation was, how is God going to rescue you? How is he going to save you? How is he going to forgive you? How is he going to reconcile you to God? How is he going to make sure that you go to heaven? That's the point that he's making. The prophets desired to know the truth about what the believers under trial had been told. They wondered. In the ancient times, they wondered, when will the Messiah come? What will he say? What will he do? 
Peter is saying, every single one of you, every single one of you is in an exalted state of privilege. When we look at the Old Testament prophets and their prophecies, who was the last Old Testament prophet? Go ahead, talk to me for a second. John the Baptist is right. John the Baptist was the last Old Testament prophet. And remember, the last Old Testament prophet who was calling Israel to repent and to turn to God. Remember, he sent a message to Jesus. He said, are you the one or are we looking for someone else? John the Baptist was beheaded. He didn't have the privilege of of knowing that the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus would take place. You do. God has orchestrated your salvation before the foundation of the world and is therefore prepared to preserve you and equip you and to provide for you according to his plan and his purpose. The prophets didn't simply wonder. It wasn't just like they go, hey, I'm just going to Google God. Hey, I wonder how it's all going to end. It isn't a casual inquiry. It was a lifelong commitment to the reality of what God was doing. And so that's the point that Peter is making. They searched the scriptures. They searched their own writings and the writings of others. The prophets wanted to understand the meaning and the implication of the revelation of God given by them to future generations. That's the point that he's making. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 17, Jesus even says, For assuredly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see. And they didn't see it. To hear what you hear. And they didn't hear it. When you open up the New Testament and you read about the birth, the life, the message of Jesus, his death and his resurrection, you have access to something so wonderful. And for some of us, we take it all for granted. We take it all for granted. It's there, and I thank God that it's there. But what happens is we get seduced by our pain. We get seduced by the pressure. We get seduced by the suffering. And all of a sudden, our marriage, our job, our culture, our government becomes the driving force in your life. And I got to tell you something. When you make salvation the driving force in your life, not how to get it, but rather rejoicing in the reality that you have it because remember, you're saved by grace through faith. And so that's part of the point. We know that salvation is the remedy for sin. We know that salvation is the finished work of Jesus. We know that salvation is the saving work of God. We know that salvation is conditioned upon faith alone. And that salvation brings freedom from the power of sin and from the penalty of sin. And one day, one day, it will deliver you from the presence of sin. i got to tell you something, Christian. Under no circumstance will you take your sin to heaven with you. It's not going to have any place. Grace is the rule of, of life. And we as children of grace know that every aspect of the law is done away with. In John chapter 1, verse 16, Romans 6, 14, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Galatians chapter 19, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15, Colossians chapter 2, verse 4, God saves sinners by grace. And there is no other way of salvation offered to men. According to Acts chapter 4, verse 12, remember, Peter said, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. I know that's not politically correct, but it's biblically true. And I can't make the truth become a lie in order to accommodate political correctness. And I can't make the truth become a lie because you're offended. But let me tell you the advantage of telling you the truth. 
the advantage of telling you the truth is if you embrace the truth, if you believe that Jesus died for your sins, if you're willing to turn from your sin and to embrace him as Savior and allow the power of the Holy Spirit to come inside of you and regenerate you. Again, this is not something that I can preach into existence or that you can even wish into existence. It's something that can only be extended when the Holy Spirit extends the invitation to your heart. When you hear that knocking on the door of your heart, God saves sinners by grace. Again, Schaefer and Walverd write, quote, Saving grace is the limitless, unrestrained love of God for the lost, acting in compliance with the exact and unchangeable demands of his own righteousness through the sacrificial death of Christ. Grace is more than love. It is love set free and made to be a triumphant victor over the righteous judgments of God against the sinner. That's what grace is. I like that. It's love set free. It's love with the ability now to change, mold, shape, cleanse, direct, free. Salvation is always by grace, Ephesians 2.8 and Titus 2.11. Salvation is always through faith, Romans 5.1. And so, the greatness of our salvation is recorded by the prophets who in an incomplete fashion, not knowing the sum and the substance of what they were saying, was a mechanism whereby you would know that's what it says. Look at the end of verse 11. The Spirit of Christ who was in them, the Holy Spirit was inside of the prophets, was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It's Peter's position that the Holy Spirit was inside of these men as a mechanism of revelation, the real truth about what God was saying. One of the most reoccurring questions I get is, how do you know the Bible is true? How do you know that God used the Bible to speak through human beings? The plan of God, the message of God. And I could say, hey, if I told you about its miraculous preservation, would, would you believe that? If I told you about the 300 prophecies that are included in the Old Testament that's not in the Upanishad, that's not in the Quran, that is not in any other holy book. If I told you that, that God in advance wrote in advance this unfolding plan of redemption. If I told you that God in advance said that a Messiah would come, that he would be of the seed of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that he would come from the line of Judah, that he would spring from the offspring of David, that as you march forth into history and you see that the Bible says that he would be born in Bethlehem, he would be born of a virgin, that he would say the most amazing things that have ever been said, that he would do the most amazing things that have ever been done, that he would de defy disease and and storms and death itself and come back to life. Would, would you believe that? If you don't believe the manuscripts and you don't believe the prophecies, what are you willing to believe? Well, if God showed up right now and told me that all of this is true, then I would believe. How do you know it wouldn't be a false spirit or a lying spirit? Well, you're right. Anything could happen. Wow, I'm hopelessly lost in, in unbelief and doubt. No, you're not. Because remember, the Bible says that, that in order to please God, all that come to him must come to him by faith. That without faith, it's impossible to please him. The Spirit of Christ and the prophets of the Old Testament is another name for the Holy Spirit. And so the Old Testament prophets and the Holy Spirit provide the theme of salvation. Remember, the Holy Spirit was in the world working in and through the prophets, orchestrating the plan of God and bringing it to fruition. The Holy Spirit plays this significant role in the revelation of divine truth to the saints and the prophets 
It's the Holy Spirit who inspired the scriptures, which are written. It's the Holy Spirit who performed miracles. It's the Holy Spirit who was present in the prophets in the past and in the apostolic preaching. It was the Holy Spirit of Christ, it says, in them, indicating when he testified beforehand of the sufferings of Christ. What sufferings? Again, passion and death. What glory? Again, his resurrection. Now imagine the second person of the Trinity overshadows the planet, forms it, and separates the land and the water. The Holy Spirit provides the mechanism whereby there's the proliferation of life on the planet Earth. The Holy Spirit's job, if you will, was to reveal the truth to some and conceal it from others. And he reveals the truth of his sufferings. What sufferings? Again, passion and death. Why the sufferings? Why does Jesus have to suffer? Because of our sin. Human beings are lost because of their sin and because of their refusal to embrace biblical revelation. But in a series of circumstances in the past, the world came under judgment, but Noah, the Bible says, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. We are lost because we disobey God. We are lost because our parents disobeyed God. We are lost because we disobey our own moral governor, which has been placed inside of each of us by God through the power of the Holy Spirit, knowing that some things are wrong. I've only met one person in my whole life who tried convincingly to tell me that he had never sinned, ever. Seriously, I had this conversation. You've never sinned? Never. Not even one time? Not even one time. Liar. That's, that's, that's enough to disqualify you right there. No, he seriously, he seriously thought that he was incapable of sin. And the reason why he thought that he was incapable of sin, the way that he made the sin go away was he just pretended that sin wasn't real. That it was an artificial construct, a man-made idea. But sin isn't a man-made idea, and it isn't an artificial construct. We are lost because of Adam's sin. We are lost because of our relationship to the world. We are lost because of our relationship with Satan. And human beings are ultimately lost because they don't have a relationship with God because that relationship has been detached because of sin. You know, one of my favorite things to say to people who don't believe that there is such a thing as right and wrong, I'll ask them, do you think it's ever a good idea to torture babies just for fun. It's pretty clear what the answer is. What do you think the answer is? That's, it's a bad idea to torture babies just for fun. It's never right. It's always wrong. A person who defends moral relativism will typically respond with, well, I can't think of a single time, but one might exist. What? What? How could you come to that wicked conclusion? The Bible says that the Spirit's great task is to carry on the work for which Jesus sacrificed his throne and his life, the redemption of fallen humanity. Now, I want you to think about this. Since the prophets were so preoccupied with salvation, since the ministry of the Holy Spirit is surrounded by salvation, that's the point that Peter is making. The Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit reproves the world. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. It says in John 16, 8, the Holy Spirit teaches. John 14, 26, it's the Holy Spirit who will teach you all things. The Holy Spirit ministers. The Holy Spirit seals in Ephesians 4, 30. The Holy Spirit baptizes in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. The Holy Spirit fills you in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Now think about this for just a moment. The Holy Spirit's ministry is devoted to pointing you to Jesus, not to Fox News, not to a conservative or a liberal government, not to a crashing economy, 
not to environmental catastrophes. Now, do you think that the Holy Spirit's concerned about all of these things? I'm, I'm sure that the Holy Spirit is concerned about these things. But guess what the Holy Spirit's real ministry ultimately is preoccupied with? It's you and your salvation. The powerful, the mighty working of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's preoccupation is with you and to point you to Jesus. The Holy Spirit in the past pointed the prophets to Jesus. In the present, they continue to point believers to Jesus. The Spirit has the attributes of God, performs the work of God, and is presented in the Bible as a personal object of faith. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that when the Holy Spirit speaks, the implicit conclusion is that we obey. When the Holy Spirit says, separate to me Paul and Barnabas for the work that I've called them to, do you think it was so that the people could say, no, I don't think so. We don't want to do that. We don't want to do what the Holy Spirit wants us to do. No, the moment that the Holy Spirit reveals something to you, your right response is to submit and say, I want to do what the Holy Spirit has asked me to do, commands me to do, and then empowers me to do. The Holy Spirit reveals and instructs and is therefore like God to be obeyed. So if the preoccupation of the writings of the, of the prophets was your salvation, if the ministry and the work and the preoccupation of the Holy Spirit is your salvation, Paul will now go, now the apostles preaching, their preaching is focused on your salvation. Look what it says, but to us in verse 12, but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you. Incomplete revelation, now complete. Message finished. The message given to the apostles. The messengers are them that preached. The preaching is the announcement. That's what preaching is. Teaching, by the way, is instruction. Preaching is urging you to believe the instruction. So tell me something. Are you teaching or are you preaching? The moment that I impart information to you, that's teaching. The moment that I say, oh, by the way, do it. That's preaching. Have you ever said to someone, don't preach to me. I hate it when people preach to me. And then you say, should I hate it that you're preaching to me right at this very moment? What do you mean? You're urging me not to preach to you. You're calling me to engage in a particular activity. And that's to cease and desist. So when I preach to you, it's very, very offensive. But when you preach to me, it's not. That's because I'm not asking you to do something. Yes, you are. You're asking me to stop preaching. <laughs> Peter reminds them of the apostolic testimony, the message of the gospel. Now, there's something that I want to draw to your attention very quickly, and that is, I want to ask you a question. How do you suppose Peter viewed the Old Testament writers? He viewed them as people who heard from God by the power of the Holy Spirit a message of hope. He's validating the Old Testament writers. Clearly, Peter believes the Bible is written with a predictive element and the books are manifestly inspired by the Holy Spirit. Peter believes that the Holy Spirit was the mechanism whereby God used people to communicate the truth. That was his position. Peter marks the unity between the Old and the New Testament. He says, one is looking backward in verses 10 and 11. One is looking forward in verse 12. Actually, it's the opposite. 
The Old Testament is looking forward in verses 10 and 11, and the New Testament is looking backward in verse 12, but the idea is that both are inspired by the Holy Spirit. They're strong criticism, and they're scholars who insist that we as Christians abandon the apostolic testimony concerning the inerrancy. By that, I mean that the Bible is without flaw, without error, in the whole, in the part. Okay, let me just be very clear here. I believe that the Bible teaches that the Bible is without error, in whole or in part. That might come as a shock to some of you. But hopefully it doesn't to most of you. When I get up here and I say, guess what? The Bible is true and it can be trusted and believed. It's true in the beginning and it's true in the end. It's true in the whole and it's true in the part. And some people will say, you mean it's true even when it's talking about history and chronology and science? Yeah, when the revelation when the Bible says something about chronology, the chronology is correct. When the Bible says something about history, the history is correct. And when the Bible makes a declaration, the declaration is correct. When the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, it doesn't mean that the universe came into existence spontaneously without any pre-existing condition. Well, how do you know that? Because the Bible says so. How do you know the Bible's true? Because Jesus said so. How do you know that Jesus is true? Because he rose from the dead. How do you know for sure? I'll ask him when I get there. What if he's not there? Then you can ask him. <laughs> Since salvation is the preoccupation with the Old Testament writers, since salvation is the preoccupation with the Holy Spirit, since salvation is the preoccupation with the New Testament writers, remember, they preach the gospel. I want to draw your attention to the phrase, through those who have preached the gospel to you. He's talking about Peter himself. He's talking about Paul. He's talking about the apostles who preached the gospel. And remember, the gospel summarized in the categories that he's already given. The sufferings, his death, the glories, the resurrection, ascension into heaven, and then Pentecost, and then the coming of the Holy Spirit in verse 12. To them it was revealed to us. They were ministering the things which have now been revealed to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven Things which angels desire to look into. The gospel? M.R. DeHaan rightly wrote, Before an individual can be saved, he has to first learn that he can't save himself. Martin Lloyd-Jones, If man could have saved himself, there would have been no need for the Son of God to come to the earth. Indeed, his coming is proof that people cannot save themselves. Luis Palau echoes the ancient sermons of the apostles when he says, Only in Jesus Christ do we have assurance of salvation, forgiveness of sin, entrance into God's family, the guarantee of heaven forever when we die. And so the gospel's message is ripe with words that point to man's sin and God's ability to save. When the apostles would preach the gospel, they, they preached repentance from sin in Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, Acts chapter 17, verse 30. But then they preached faith in Christ, Acts chapter 20, verse 21, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 and so the writings of Paul and Peter and John rightly focus on repentance and faith and regeneration and justification and adoption and sanctification and prayer do you know why the gospel is so filled with the gospel why the preaching of the apostles was so filled with the gospel because God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, wanted to communicate something to you. And that is that there's nothing more important than the forgiveness of sin. 
There's nothing more important than reconciliation to God by Christ. There's nothing more important than the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit to walk with you and guide you and lead you and transform you. People in sorrow, people in pain, people in trial, focus on the deprivation. Now, so many people will say, look, I don't want another gospel message and I don't want to hear about my salvation. I want you to give me counseling. Okay, here's my counsel. Focus on your salvation. No, that's not what I had in mind. You may not understand this, but the reason why I would have you focus on your salvation it's because that's what Peter asks us to focus on in the midst of the trial, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the sorrow, in the midst of the suffering. He draws attention to the reader and he says, you're connected to God in heaven. You're connected forever. Your inheritance is sure and true. And, and so he brings about this particular thing. He's making it clear Glory is not something we simply anticipate for the future. It's something that we experience now. Now think carefully where we've come in our text. Peter tells us to love Jesus in verse 8. To trust Jesus in verse 8. To rejoice in Jesus in verse 8. To receive from Jesus in verse 8. Yeah, let's read it. Verse 8. Whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him. Yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. What? In the trial, love him. In the trial, trust him. In the trial, believe him. In the trial, embrace him. We love Jesus not because we've seen him with earthly eyes, but because of the real encounter that we've had because we've come to faith and confidence in him. The Holy Spirit has poured out God's love inside of our hearts. It's worth going to. Romans chapter 5, verse 5. In Romans chapter 5, verse 5, it says this. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. I don't feel any love in my heart. You may not feel any love in your heart, but the Bible says that when you trusted Jesus, the Holy Spirit showed up and poured out his love inside of your heart. Why would he do such a thing? He would do such a thing because he's reminding you, he's reminding you that you're not your own. Peter is in effect reminding the reader that the Holy Spirit entrusted godly people with a supernatural revelation, a considerable amount of truth. That revelation fell short and now he's given it to clueless New Testament believers. And so he ends with, angelic curiosity. Look what it says. Things which angels desire to look into. Now again, I'm sure that the angels right at this very moment are watching Fox News. The angels right at this moment are aware of the contemporary happenings on the planet. They are looking for the scientific breakthroughs, the natural disasters, clean energy alternatives, psychiatric medications, climate change, global wealth distribution. The angels are interested in all of that stuff. Not. As a matter of fact, when it says the angels desire, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting word. It's epithumea. It means epi is the preposition. Thumea is, is, is desire. It's sometimes translated even lust. The idea is these things angels absolutely positively have a preoccupation with. In other words... This might come as a shock and as a surprise to some of you, but for whatever reason, God has chosen you to be sort of like a cosmic object lesson to the angelic hosts. What? 
Yeah, you exist in part to teach a lesson to the angels. What lesson is that? Of the glory, the magnificence, the grace, the mercy, the generosity, the unbelievable graciousness of a true and living God. Our salvation, clearly the angels have always been interested in God's dealing with human beings. The angels celebrated the creation of the planet. The angels witnessed the fall of man in the garden. The angels were on guard at the tree of life. The angels visited Abraham in Genesis 18 and rescued Lot in Genesis 19. An angel assisted Hagar in the desert and revealed themselves to Jacob from a ladder that stretched from the heavens to the earth. Angels assisted the Lord in the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. Angels Angels rescued Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in a fiery furnace. They shut the mouth of the lion in in the den of Daniel. They appeared to Mary. Angels told Joseph to marry her. The angels announced his birth. They've been around. They've seen it all. Do you think that they were aware of Elijah's depression? That when he smote the prophets of Baal and then he ran into the wilderness and he goes, I was dead. Do you think that angels were present when the Lord told Jonah to go to Nineveh to preach the gospel, but he went in the opposite direction and Jonah said, I'd rather be dead than obey God. Hey, just throw me overboard. And they did throw him overboard into the Mediterranean. You know what happens when you're in the middle of the Mediterranean? You usually die. But God prepared a sea creature, swallowed Jonah, and he went in the opposite direction to preach the gospel because that's what God wanted. You mean God will make me do things I don't necessarily want to do? Yeah. (laughs) Hey, I didn't know that that was part of the deal. It's part of the deal. You mean being a Christian means I actually have to Obey what the Bible says? Yeah, that's part of the deal. So why do angels desire to look into these things? Because angels will never have what you have. The mightiest angel who has seen every historical event doesn't have what you have. Forgiveness. Do you realize that the grace of God has not been visited upon angels? It's been visited upon you. The reason why the angels so diligently look into this thing is because of this gigantic question. How could someone like you ever be saved? Hey, I'm not that bad. Hey. Remember, this is a conversation you're having inside of you. You don't have to prove anything to me. You know the truth about your wicked heart. You know the truth about your wicked past. You know the truth about your filthy thoughts. You know the truth about who you are. You know the truth. And so the biggest question anyone should ever ask is, how can God save someone like me? And the answer to that question begins in Genesis and ends in Revelation and the ongoing unfolding story of your redemption and reconciliation to God. How can you cleanse something so filthy? How can you forgive something so wrong? How can you redeem something so worthless? Angels aren't redeemed. Angels aren't forgiven. Angels aren't saved. When I was a kid, I used to wonder what it would be like to be an angel. Yeah, it was a wonder. It never happened. Why can't you be better than you are? Was the reoccurring theme that I heard when I was growing up. I guess they're right. How how can I be better than I am? I'm not. I'm a, a, a sinner. Would it shock you? Would it surprise you? Would it embarrass you that angels wonder what it would be like to be you? Our salvation isn't simply a doctrine to be learned. It isn't simply a set of principles to be believed. Our salvation provides the basis of joy and the basis of hope 
and the basis of love and the basis of gratitude. It provides the basis whereby we can embrace grace and manifest strength and have the ability to love and trust Jesus. And so in the first chapter, Peter wants us to consider the source of our salvation the guarantee of our salvation, the joy of our salvation, the greatness of our salvation. We can praise God for our present hope and future hope. Our salvation causes joy to well up inside of us, even in the presence of trial and suffering and setback. Our salvation is great and glorious, and the greatness and glory is seen in the way in which God has carefully communicated salvation throughout all of human history by the prophets. By the Holy Spirit, by the apostles, and even the angels. And so Peter is going to move from that thought. Our salvation is great in the universal interest that it generates to the theme of hope and holiness. And so there's a huge transition that's going to begin to take place in the text as we move from hope to holiness, as we look at the past and the present and the future in light of how God wants us to live really, really, really in the here and the now. That's in verses 13 through 21. You read ahead, you won't regret it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray for that person who hasn't thought about his or her salvation for a very long time. But Lord, I pray that you would impress upon them to think about it, to think about what God has done, to think about the fact that we're not going to hell, to think about the fact that our sins have been forgiven, to think about the fact that we've been cleansed, to think about that we have an eternal hope in heaven, to think about these things. Lord, not in wishful thinking that the pain, the sorrow, the trial, the tragedy is going to somehow magically disappear. But Lord, we know that your grace is sufficient. And that your strength will be the mechanism whereby we can trust that because you've begun the good work in us. You'll continue that work in us. And you'll see it to the day of our of the coming of Jesus Christ in glory. Lord, I don't even for a, a moment imagine that the pain isn't real and that the suffering isn't real, the tragedy isn't real, the hardship and the deprivation isn't real. It's all real. But there's something far more real. And so, Heavenly Father, we are content to have exactly what you want us to have and not have exactly what you don't want us to have. In Jesus' name, amen.